What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DeCebedo and this week we have two stories for you. First we examine the routine but intense scrutiny regulators are giving fund managers of ESG funds and then we give you an update on the wind energy industry. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Most people are exposed to ESG through the funds they invest in. We have all this data, all these ratings, all these metrics that can be used to profile the impact of an ESG risk factor on an individual company. But most of that sort of data are used by institutional investors that have consultants, help create financial products, and have a lot of assets under management. Whereas the average person also called retail investors, retail investors encounter ESG through the funds in their individual investment accounts, like a retirement account, like a 401k account, where institutional investors have the tools to decide what they want to use ESG data for and create a fund that accomplishes that. Retail investors choose a fund someone has already created and have to trust that it's doing what it says it's doing mean the fund on the label is extremely important, especially for ESG funds. Think of this like you think of food labels. If you buy a can of all-natural soup, you want it to have things like vegetables, broth, maybe some nice protein. You don't want to find out it's full of sugar and artificial flavorings that aren't listed on the food label. Same with ESG. If something says ESG is on it, I as a retail investor need to be able to trust that this fund incorporates ESG analysis into its investment process. I don't have the time or resources to disprove that claim if it's out there. But ESG isn't a molecule, it's an acronym, and it is left to different subjectivities because of that. Financial market regulators know this and are working to figure out a way to ensure that what is on the ESG tin matches what is inside. So they're doing what regulators do. They are starting to examine. The news has reported on some of these examinations that have already been conducted, such as the one at BNY Mellon, where the U.S. SEC levied a fine of $1.5 million U.S. because it found BNY Mellon Investment Advisor did not always perform the ESG quality review that it disclosed using as part of its investment selection process for certain mutual funds it advised. There are some ongoing examinations, like the one reported on at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. There's even been one raid that's occurred at DWS and Deutsche Bank in Germany by around 50 agents of Frankfurt's public prosecutor's office alongside German market regulator Buffin and the Federal Criminal Police Office of the region over allegations of misleading investors about green investments, the prosecutor said. These all sound similar, but they are actually very different stories happening in very different regulatory jurisdictions. But what they do signal is the larger movement of regulators imposing more clarity around ESG in the financial markets. And they have their work cut out for them because as my guest and colleague Rumi Mahmood is going to tell you, there are a lot of ESG funds out there that aim to do a lot of different things and they will likely be part of a routine but nonetheless detailed examination into their ESG investment processes by a regulator at some point in time. So we estimate that there, there are just under 1,500 sustainable funds or ESG funds domiciled in the US, and they range quite a bit in scope from ESG integration, where the core objective really is to optimize risk-adjusted returns. Uh, and, and so the ESG is integrated to the extent that 
such considerations are financially material to the performance of the underlying companies. And then through values alignment, where certain sectors or types of companies engaging in certain business activities or controversies are excluded. And then you know, the integration you know, approach can also uh, include um, things such as you know, various themes. So think of clean energy, um, you know, clean water, uh, or social and demographic themes, megatrends. Then on the very darker green uh, side of the spectrum, there are funds that uh, specifically have the goal of having a measurable environmental or social impact. So, you know, UNSTG-focused funds or uh, Paris-aligned funds um, aiming to have an emissions trajectory in line with with, with the Paris Accord. So they, they really are a spectrum. Uh, and as I mentioned, so far, all these funds have, have operated in the U.S. without any real standardized reporting uh, regime or, or, or framework to, to, to adhere to. And to be clear, these regulatory crackdowns haven't been due to the holdings these ESG funds have. As Rumi noted, ESG doesn't necessarily mean climate-friendly or socially progressive. It can, but it's not necessary. I can have an ESG fund with Microsoft or MasterCard as my largest holding, as long as that holding was selected using an ESG investment process that is transparent and actually in place. The problem is, for a retail investor, the only way you really get to look into what is actually going on with that investment process is by looking at a fund's prospectus or the fund's investment statement or an asset manager's statement of ESG and impact investing that is publicly available on their website. But when you look at those documents, they are replete with words like proprietary ESG dashboard or proprietary ESG scorecard or integrated ESG lens. There's no way to get a deep, deep look into those funds Unless you are a large asset owner who employs an institutional investment advisory consultant who issues what's called a request for proposal or RFP to asset managers offering them multi-million dollar investment opportunities if they just fill them out. And in that RFP, you can ask things like, what specifically is your process for integrating ESG into your investment strategy? What data do you use? What happens when there's a conflict between what the portfolio manager wants to invest in and what the ESG specialist that's on that investment team says is investable? And then the consultant reads that RFP, and then they meet with the fund managers and drill them on the processes and ask to see governing documents that support that process. And then they meet with the analysts that help run the funds and then they take all this information back to their institutional clients to let them know what's going on. Retail investors cannot do that. So regulators are trying to step into the process and enact some sort of balance. And aside from bringing ESG clarity that's part of all this, another reason why this matters is because of the fees that investment managers charge for actually running a fund, also called expense ratios. Expense ratios are often why funds have different share classes. A different share class for the same fund will have different expense ratios, and it's just because of the minimum investment you need to put in that fund to lock in a lower expense ratio. Because what an expense ratio says is, if you get a return of 1% per year from investing in this fund, but it has an expense ratio of 0.85%, then at the end of the year, what you're actually getting is a return of 0.15% after the fee has been netted out and given to the investment manager. And the thing with actively managed ESG funds is that on average, they charge higher expense ratios than their non-ESG counterparts. So the average active ESG fund domiciled in the US has an expense ratio of around 85 basis points, and that's higher than the average non 
uh, ESG Active Fund, which is at around 70 basis points. So on, on an asset-weighted basis, um, ESG funds are more expensive than their non-ESG counterparts. There is a reason for that. For an ESG fund, you need more layers to your investment process if you're doing it right. You need that ESG quality overlay. So you have more people you have to pay. You have more systems you have to buy. More oversights needed. Maybe you're buying ESG data from someone like MSCI ESG Research. I don't know. This made me think about a regulation that came out in 2012 by the Department of Labor called the 404A5 Disclosure. Look it up. What it did was provide participants in retirement plans with more transparency on the fees they are paying. It was called the Rule to Improve Transparency of Fees and Expenses to Workers in 401k-type Retirement Plans. A catchy name, I know. And I asked Rumi if he thought this might be something similar, that the fees will be the first to be impacted by all these different regulators looking in all these different jurisdictions and all these different types of ESG funds. I think the impact of regulatory scrutiny won't be on fees. It will be more on how um, ESG fund providers and fund managers conduct themselves, how they report. Um, you know, I think down the line, they will probably come to some standardized uh, reporting framework so that everyone reports the same metrics, same units in, a, in an apples to apples comparable way. Uh, and then that in turn, should help for the average investor, the average retail investor to make more informed decisions. That's the optimistic scenario. If the regulators are sufficiently smart and flexible and their implementation of these regulations matches their good intentions. There are also the unintended consequences of this regulatory push. That the regulations won't reflect the reality and nuance that fund managers are attempting to bring to the market with ESG funds, and instead of bringing more clarity, they create more confusion by asking for, say, irrelevant disclosures and thus depress innovation in a burgeoning field. There could also be a fragmentation in regions where, in one jurisdiction, funds would have one set of rules that could conflict with another jurisdiction. The EU and US, for example, are already seemingly going down different regulatory paths. But ultimately, we're going to have to wait and see how this all turns out. The tracks of regulations cannot be known to a certainty. Ah, wind energy. In the chaos of these past two years, I almost forgot about it. But the sector is growing. Technological advancement, financial incentives, and policy pushes have changed the wind energy landscape over the past decade and will likely continue to do so in the coming decade. Or so say my two colleagues, Matthew Lee and Nelson Lee, no relation, who recently wrote a report on identifying the wind company's best position to benefit from the growing demand for more clean energy. So to find out more about this, I called them up to ask them about the industry as a whole and what they found in their research. So Nelson, let's start with you. What is going on in the wind industry as a whole? So there's been a couple of major things that's happened in the wind industry in the last decade. Um, one, wind, the installed capacity, like how many wind turbines there are out there, have quadrupled. There's four times as many wind turbines today as there were back in 2010. Um, so there's much more wind energy on the grid. And then the other dramatic change that's happened is the, the cost decline in wind. Uh, prices have dramatically fallen for the, for the price to install a turbine and to get it up and operated. So those two things together have made wind energy one of the most uh, compelling new energy products to put on to the grid. What about with turbine size? I remember 
that there was this great article in 2018 where it compared the size of what uh, U.S. turbines used to look like in back in the day and what they look like now and how some of them are about half the size of the Empire State Building, for example. Are turbine sizes with wind energy also continuing to grow? Yeah, absolutely. So back in 2010, average blade sizes were about 90 feet long. Um, they're pushing 120, 150 feet right now. And if you stand at the, you can stand inside a wind turbine blade and have like ample room to move your arms around. So as as the blades get longer, the amount of uh, sweep area that the the blades sweep increases in size, and the the area that the blades sweep uh, basically determine the power output of each individual wind turbine. Okay, Matthew, I want to move to you now. So that's that's kind of the industry as a whole. It's continuing to grow. It's continuing to advance, and that's all being seen by you all in this paper. But what about the actual companies? that are in this industry and best positioned to benefit from this continued advancement? Yeah, Mike, we, th- we thought of it as two groups. So one group are these equipment manufacturers, turbine manufacturers. Um, and so these are the GEs, the Vestas, the Goldwins of the world. Um, and then the second group being the utility or sometimes private um, energy developers that actually develop and own and operate these project, these wind turbine projects. Um, because of the complex regulatory environment, as well as the capital intensiveness of the wind industry, um, especially in light of supply and chain pressures and um, inflationary environments, I think first mover advantage is what comes to mind. It's, it's going to be a lot harder now to enter and emerge as a leader. So that's why in this report, we look to who already has established themselves um, as a leader in the space. So for um, the equipment manufacturers, uh, their R&D capabilities through things like their patent data was what we looked at. Uh, for developers, we compared their um, existing uh, wind capacity, see if they've already developed 5 to 10 gigawatts, um, as well as their planned capacity. Have they already won the rights to develop uh, many contracts in the future, You know, in the short term? Do you have any examples of some of these already established companies that are in play that you looked at? Sure. Yeah. So I th- a couple of utility companies that already um, are have over 10 gigawatts of installed capacity include a couple of Chinese utilities um, where they tend to be, you know, over 80 percent of their uh, power generation portfolio is in wind. So these are uh, China Datong Corporation, uh, China Three Gorges Corporation, uh, Longyuan Power. Um the European utilities also have pretty significant existing wind portfolios like Iberdrola, um, EDP Energy of Portugal, and RWE. Um, they actually are a bit more diversified in their uh, power generation portfolio, though. In all three of these utilities, wind is uh, no greater than 50% of their installed capacity. Okay, this is the last question for either of you. I think a lot of times we talk about renewable energy. We talk about whether or not there's enough installed capacity to help us meet the either 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Celsius uh, cap of warming that, you know, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or other other climate scientists say we need to do in order to stave off catastrophic climate change. Do you see wind energy now as being able to uh, meet those demands, those energy demands uh, in the coming years? Well, the the trick, I think the tricky part is sustaining the rate of growth, right? So in a net zero by 2050 scenario, wind energy is meant to provide 16% of total global energy supply. 
Um, this is using the uh, network for greening the financial systems scenarios. It's currently 1%, right? So that that's the, the scale of growth we're talking about here. Um, I think that if, if you were to linearly project this out, there's about 150 gigawatts of capacity additions you need through 2030 uh, to align with this type of a scenario. Um, and that's one fifth of our entire global capacity right now, every year, right? And so it, it's it, in an absolute sense, like wind industry growth, definitely, I think the prospects are good, but so I, I would look to what I would call like complementary uh, items that need to come along with this for it to be successful. So it is the grid transmission, especially in the US that's really fallen behind compared to like a Denmark where on a given day, 90, 90 plus percent of the country you know, is uh, is um, is powered by wind, even though they have many islands, just because they have an interconnected grid. And then batteries are the other big thing to look out for. You know, that can really um, help with the intermittency of wind and, and make sure that your supply uh, generated by wind energy uh, can meet the demands of your grid. Yeah, like another strategy is to just overbuild the wind. And when you do that, you're going to have too much energy at certain times of day, but that's going to unlock all these like opportunities for new businesses to come in and take advantage of that. And like one thing that's happening right now is they're they're doing a lot of pilot projects trying to co-locate wind with uh, hydrogen electrolysis. And so when you have too much wind and the wind and the grid can't handle it, then you just convert that wind using electrolysis into hydrogen, and and hydrogen has all these potential uses across the economy. And, and Nelson, I think that's the sort of green hydrogen. Um, one one way people are building out green hydrogen opportunities, right? Where the primary energy input used to create this hydrogen is also renewable so that you're not having um, uh, as emissions intensive of a process compared to gray or blue hydrogen. Okay, great. Thank you both so much. And that's it for the week. I want to thank Rumi and Matthew and Nelson for talking to me about the news with an ESG twist and I want to thank you so much for listening I really appreciate it if you like what you heard don't forget to rate and review us that can push us higher up on some podcast lists and more people can find us and if you like what you heard don't forget to subscribe because then you can hear myself for Bentley every week have a good rest of the week and talk to you soon The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to, nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.